Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 20 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Genius, Dean A.S., and I'm joined, as ever, by sports journalist and wrestling aficionado, Liam Happ. Good evening, Liam. How are you doing, sir? Uh, I think you meant to say happy anniversary, Liam. Happy anniversary? Well, of course. It yes. Is, uh, it is the one-year anniversary of this very show. We made it. Despite, How the hell despite all the doubters, the main one being me, we made it to 12 <laughs> months of doing this podcast. And long may it last. Long may it last. Well, we've got plenty of uh, WCW ridiculousness to get through. So we're, we're nowhere near starting. It's just the tip of the iceberg, baby. It is the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, yes. And speaking of gifts that keep on giving, look at this pay-per-view we're doing today. Super Brawl 5. Oh, Hogan my God. Versus Vader. Yes. And uh, and we've also got a very special guest I'm very excited to have along, we, who we will uh, we'll introduce in a very short moment. But before then, um, you went along to uh, the wrestling media con last weekend how'd that work out for you yes i did uh yeah i enjoyed it very much uh i I suppose time will tell exactly what this concept uh where it stands uh, as far as the wrestling industry goes but it was a good idea it's a novel concept there was you know it's a festival of wrestling first off there were you know i think six different promotions staged at least one match uh obviously rev pro did two cards one on each day, Saturday and Sunday. Impact were there. First time in years that Impact have had their, you know, the, during the, the lesser times for the British wrestling industry, just before things really picked up in recent years, Impact were one of the, uh, or TNA as they're known, one of the sole beacons who were coming over every year without foul, doing Wembley Arena. And it was nice to finally have them back after their identity crisis of the last few years. Uh, and the, the guests were amazing because... You know, Dave Meltzer was over for, mm. I think, only his second UK visit, I think he said. Um, Finn Martin, Colt Cabana, Martin Goldsmith, those four all went into the first ever Wrestling Media Hall of Fame. I have since started my campaign to make sure that you, sir, are in the second group of inductees. <laughs> get get the Twisted Genius into the Hall of Fame. Uh, as well as my campaign to get you into the WWE. Now they've suddenly changed tune about hiring managers. Get the Twisted Genius into it's, the WWE. I, I'm, I'm telling you now, it, it's, um, yeah, I'll, I'll last three days probably. So it's, yeah, probably, probably not worth pushing for, but hey. But what three glorious days they would be. But getting, <laughs> but getting back on topic, it was good. I think the, the crowds at the live wrestling work times are a little bit exhausted. It was a very intense uh, regimen of wrestling action, especially with the Rev Pro, because there there wasn't a lot of variety or, or, or breaks within their action. They were coming at you fast with tournament matches, tournament matches. So it was a lot to take in. The crowd was very tired as a result. 
Uh, and I think that's the best way to look at it. Is, uh, uh, the biggest negative I'd say is it was rough around the edges, but it w- it was a great thing to to get every you know diehard wrestling fans, some of the best in wrestling media, some great uh, of the current crop of actual performers uh, doing their thing between the ropes. So I really really hope that it does carry on and it, at least for a second go because hopefully this time it won't clash with something important of yours and you'll be able to join me. Indeed, yeah, I was uh, unable to make it as I was uh, celebrating my brother's 50th birthday, which makes me feel old, so God knows what it makes him feel. Um, and uh, and then I went to, uh, I'd already got tickets to see the Arctic Monkeys at the O2, and what a magnificent show that was uh, at Wembley Arena, absolutely packed. We're up we're up in the bleachers, and, and there's this, this sea of humanity below us. Um, and again, I'm of the age where I'm quite glad I was sitting upstairs watching everyone jostling around in the mosh pit but hey um so just uh, before we um before we bring our guest in uh one thing that is on my calendar in the very near future if you're listening to us early doors is that ipw the promotion that i commentate for along with the magnificent ricky slatter uh we are celebrating our 14th year uh which is quite the achievement and uh, we've got an anniversary weekend coming up. So we've, we've actually got two shows on the Saturday, the 22nd of um, September, and then another show on the Sunday. Saturday, we have got um, headlined by British Strong Style, uh, Pete Dunn, Trent Seven, and Tyler Bate. They are coming over. Um, we've got Pete Dunn against Mark Haskins. Kip Sabian defends the world title against Doug Williams, who gets probably his his last tilt at the uh, a world title at this uh, stage of his career and they've also got the uh, the international super 8 tournament um, other people involved in that are Bad Bones and David Starr. Plus, we've got the IPW Women's Champion, Zaya Brookside, fresh from the May Young Classic. Uh, she'll be in action. All this happens in a venue that is very close uh, to my heart, somewhere that I've performed for many, many years, Moat Hall uh, in Maidstone, at Maidstone Leisure Centre, uh, which is a venue steeped in British wrestling history. And um, the following day, the 23rd, we have also got another show, and it, the headline show there is the final battle between Doug Williams and pro wrestling was Naomichi Marafuji who recently had a uh, match with Hideo Itami or Kenta as you may know him from WWE so all that is happening uh, in the very near future however one person who has made certainly an impression in the uh, Moat Park Closure Centre in Maidstone in years gone by uh, a very good friend of mine and I'm so glad to have him on the show uh Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, our guest tonight, Justin Richards. Justin, how are you doing, my friend? Hello, Dean. Hello, Dean. Thank you for inviting me on the show. And hello, Liam. Sorry. Hello, both of you. Hello to you, too. Glad to be involved. Most guests just ignore me. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing and what are you up to these days, Mr. Richards? Oh, what am I doing? I'm... uh... Well, I took quite quite a long break from wrestling, uh, from wrestling training, um... Maybe, maybe more than four years I've been away now, um, living in China, uh, teaching English in China. I decided to take a break from wrestling because I had a lot on my plate uh, at the time. Um, I couldn't, couldn't handle wrestling as well as real life. Um, and if you can't commit fully, uh, especially to wrestling training, then you shouldn't really attempt to 
to, to be in it at all. So I, I decided just to take a step away from the business for uh, quite a while. I'm back in the UK temporarily. Uh, and actually, I'm enjoying being invited uh, to, to the occasional training school around the country. I've done quite a few, attended quite a few training uh, training schools, helping them out with their, their students. Um, yes, I'm enjoying myself again. I'm enjoying training again. Nice. So who, just for people who don't, uh, who may not know, who, you know, what names have you trained in the past then? Oh, that, that's something I've got quite a bit of an issue discussing. I, I don't like to actually name names that I've helped train. I'm more of a person, more of a person to say that, uh, the wrestler should name the, the coaches, not the, the coach shouldn't okay. name the, um, the, the wrestlers, but, um, I, I think I've, I've helped advise quite a few, uh, current wrestlers on the scene hopefully they would agree okay well yeah we'll, we'll just say that there are a number of, of significant players in the wrestling game in this country and further afield who who i think owe a great deal of their success to you but i mean we first met about 25 years ago in hammerlock wrestling wow hammerlock it was a uh, ha the tank silo on the edge of the cliff, if I remember rightly. <laughs> um, yes, yeah. yeah, so it was. Uh, it's, it's, you know, before I before I came online to, to to chat with you guys, I was thinking about uh, the remaining game guys that were from the original Hammerlock Gym. And when I talk original, I I mean the original Hammerlock Gymnasium and the original Hammerlock School of Wrestling. Perilously um, balanced on the edge of a cliff in Folkestone, as you say. Yes, um, I think the names, the remain, oh, the remaining guys that are on the scene working at the moment, um, you can count them on one hand. You've got like Ooh. Adam Mansfield, um, Phil Powers. Yeah, a name that doesn't get dropped too often. Phil Powers, uh, Doug, Doug Williams, uh, David Brown, Mister Vane. He's uh, <laughs> He's still out there doing the thing. Um, and, of course, you've got um, Alex Shane. Um, yeah. Those those were the, the guys that were, I think, um, training in the gym at the same time as me, um, either slightly after, or in Phil Powers' case, um, Phil was training quite a time before I turned up at the Hamlock gym. So, yes, yeah, um, Wow, what a journey, eh? What a yeah. journey we've seen. And I, I remember the first show that I ever emceed, which was just a, a friends and family gym show um, uh, for, for the trainees. You were the timekeeper. That was the first time I ever met you. I was the timekeeper. And, uh, yeah, that was that was terrible. That yeah. Was... <laughs> and, what an um... awful time. That was... <laughs> oh. And, of, of course, we I mentioned there about IPW at the Moat Hall in, um, in Maidstone. There was... Um, quite an instant there between uh, there's i believe it was a match between you and alex shane at maidstone back in what probably 95 96 oh i know where you're going with this yes <laughs> yes the 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 horrible um this was done unless we are speaking about the different time when um poor mr mansfield was was attacked by yes that is what yes. i'm thinking we, 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 yes, we spanned some, some angle where um, Adam, my 
my uh, my tag team partner was hiding underneath the ring, and every time I stamped, I threw Alex outside of the ring. I stamped down on the uh, on a canvas. Adam would crawl out of the ring, attack uh, Alex, then climb back under the ring, and the crowd went crazy for that. We did it about three or four times. We kicked the ass out of it, really, and uh, yeah, the fans had enough. And uh, the next time I tried it, <laughs> the women just, they, they ran, women and men just ran from their seats, jumped on top of Adam, scratching, kicking, biting, attacking him. The poor guy was savage. Yes, that was, that was, that was fun. Fun for me, not fun for, not fun for poor Adam. <laughs> but Joe, you know, I've, I've, I've not aware of anyone doing that stamping and stamping your foot and the guy comes out from under the ring angle too much these days. It's something no. we, we it should be brought back, but maybe with, with a show with guardrails. And then of course we, um we, we came, we met again in the FWA where you, cause you were the one, of the original, were you the first FWA British champion? No, no. I think the first champion was Mark Sloan. Ah, right. Mark Sloan. Uh, and then it was Alex Shane. And then I think he vacated the title because there was, um, was it UWA came along? Yep. He saw, he saw a better opportunity with UWA. So decided to vacate the belt. And then I picked it up in, oh gosh, it was a tournament type of event for... Evil Intentions, which was held in Halifax 2001. Um, yeah, and um, crikey, I can just about remember this. It was um, elimination, oh, it was an elimination type of event. Uh, gosh, who was I in the match with? Uh, Guy Funder, uh, George Costano, and Scotty Rock. There we go. Ah, okay. <laughs> Yes. Uh, all, yeah. all people who came from Hammerlock, of course. Yes, originally. of course. That was the business was a smaller environment back then. So we, we all knew each other really. We all worked or walked in a circle that you know of familiarity. We all knew each other. Um, yes. My and my entry into wrestling though oh came before the professional scene. It, it was it, I was talking to someone recently about this. Um getting involved with wrestling training now is, is so much more simpler. Um, uh, back in the day, Hammerlock was the only um, wrestling training school. Andre Baker was the only person willing to accept um, students to train, to become wrestlers. Yeah. Um, there, was, there was nobody really else that I knew of. Well, it was all a closed were shop. There were there were training schools, but you weren't told about them because it was just a train closed shop within within a promotion. Yes, yeah, Andre. And, and you learnt on the job by getting the crap kicked out of you, basically. Oh well, Andre Baker was quite a bit of a black sheep himself at the time. He wasn't really one of the one of the the, the main boys on the scene. He was put out on uh, on the side, so he thought, fuck it, you know, and he said, I'll go and train people. And he did, and he trained him his way, which was the hard way. Yeah, it was a very um, different way of training that we see uh, today. 
Well, I mean, I've mentioned this pr- briefly in the past, but I had, while I was at Hammerlock, I had a singles match as while I was the ring announcer, a gimmick singles match with Johnny Storm. I remember. And, uh, and the, the man who took the bulk of the training for me was your good self. But yes. one thing that <laughs> I had to do, because everyone had to do it at Hammerlock, was I had to do some shoot, fight, shoot fighting and training and shoot style before I was allowed into the ring. Do you know, it, we had... Oh, we had... Vickers, we had uh, we had doctors, uh, we had people from so many different professions coming through our training school that Andre said, Justin, stretch them. I came from a, an amateur wrestling background. My my first entry into wrestling was through freestyle wrestling when I was 15 years old, and uh, I was I was beaten up pretty badly um, in the amateur days. Um, when I started, uh, again, they weren't too keen on having too many outsiders come in. And if you did want to learn about amateur wrestling, you had to earn it. And to earn it, you were put through the ringer. And I had Matt Burns going across my face, across the corners of my eyes, so I couldn't blink. And when you've got Matt Burn across the corners of your eye and you're sweating and you can't blink, oh. that's painful. Yeah. They put Matt Burns on a inside crooks of your arms so you couldn't fold your arms they would they would purposely try to put you off um wanting to become involved with uh, wrestling but I, I kept on coming back i was a plucky 15 year old being beaten up by 30 40 year old men and after a month or two worth of doing that they they accepted me and started to show me the ropes and uh ha Quite interesting, actually. One of the guys that after about, uh, let me see, after about a couple of months of training um, in the infamous Valhalla Amateur Wrestling uh, Club, um, I went down to a a training gym in London Bridge. It's still there today, I believe, amateur wrestling club called Tokai. And uh, I bumped into a young, very young, 13, maybe, maybe younger than that, maybe 12, your old uh, wrestler that uh, is now known as James Mason. Oh, right. So James Mason, um, he was wrestling. He just started amateur wrestling at the time, but he was brought in the correct way, the kind way. He wasn't injured. He wasn't given mat burns. He wasn't beaten up. He was was given a kindly, gentle... (laughs) Uh, introduction to amateur wrestling. So yeah, me and James, we've known each other for a very long time. And uh, yeah, and um, so getting involved with Hammerlock, Andre loved the fact that I was brought in to the business, what he called the right way. Mm. Um, so he he instantly took a shine to me, and from then on, he gave me the responsibility of of welcoming in. Uh, most of the the trainees that followed so <laughs> Break, breaking yeah. in the newbies yeah and see if they come back but it was fun it was fun at the time um but i didn't want to put those guys through the same experiences as me yeah so much uh so much as Andre wanted me to but <laughs> well i mean i've said it before the training that i had with you i've i've never been fitter in all my life I genuinely haven't, you know, you, because of what, what you, I say you put me through, it was tough, but it was, it was 
what was you know, it got me in condition to be able to have a, a match without blowing up. So, <laughs> so, so thank you for that, genuinely. And and yeah, and, and and I've said before as well, the FWA. Out of all the people I've ever worked with, I think you and I had the most fun out we of any, because we would we would have We'd the do. same routine for virtually every match, which was just. <laughs> I would annoy the hell out of the opponent. You would wrestle them, and eventually the the uh, the babyface would turn their back on you to have a go at me, and you'd lock in the crossface chicken win and and win the match. <laughs> and we did the same routine every time, but we did it so well that it made it believable because I was just an annoying prick. It was so much fun. It really was. Let me just ask you one more thing before we get onto the sure. uh, onto the show. Obviously, twenty five years ago. 20 years ago, the British wrestling scene was was not in a good place. As someone who worked through that period to kind of keep things running, how do you feel about where British wrestling scene is at now? It's amazing, really, looking at the, the talent that's on the scene at the moment. Uh, I've, I've had the experience of visiting quite a lot of uh, training schools up and down the country, and I'm seeing the talent, the, the, the new talent that's coming through and it's incredible. It, it, wow, this is where we wanted wrestling to be. This is where we've been working to get wrestling. And um, it's, it makes life pretty difficult for me because I spent so long coaching. Um, now I can look and think, well, you know, my style of training isn't really needed anymore. Technically, I'm the, I'm the Nanny McPhee of, of British wrestling training. <laughs> uh, you know, w- when you need me, but don't want me, I'll stay. But when you when you want me, but don't need me, you know, I'll go. Uh, and I'm not needed in, on the British wrestling scene anymore, training people, because the coaches we've got at the moment are magnificent, absolutely magnificent coaches. Uh, they're bringing out the best in the students. All you need to do is look at the the talent today, and um, it's 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 a privilege to have been part of it, but. Uh, my God, wrestling is so much better than what it was. And uh, it's, it's, it's only going to get better. And yeah. that's a big responsibility that the students of today need to take, uh, take on board. There will always be a place for you at wrestling training schools because of the eye for detail you have, which is exactly why I wanted to get you on here to break down some of the, uh, the matches on this show. Why did you choose Super Bowl Five out of interest? <laughs> because... It was probably one of the worst pay-per-views I can remember. <laughs> it's, I, Thanks, can't remember I can't remember a decent match from it. And uh, I've got, I have got quite a tendency to roll my eyes quite a lot when I see bad matches. And my eyes were permanently rolled back through every one of these matches. Um, oh, oh, let's just, let's get going. Let's. <laughs> okay. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one. And you're listening to Because WCW. Now choke on that. We start off with the WWE Network informing us that this show is presented to us in the most complete form possible due to original production technical difficulties. Um, not a, not quite sure what that means other than because WCW and the technical department. Um 
so uh, we we did watch the opening few minutes on um on uh, on YouTube, so we're all up mm. to date. But um, we're in the Baltimore Arena, which is the site of Sting's first world title victory over Ric Flair about five years previously at the uh, Great American Bash '90. But our main event tonight is the match many thought would never happen as Hulk Hogan defends his WCW World Heavyweight Championship against the former champion, Vader. Um, uh, also, as a side note, as someone who's got absolutely no interest in American football, it took me years to realise that the Super Bowl was given its name because of its proximity to the Super Bowl, which takes place in February every year. Just <laughs> Suddenly, the, the penny dropped quite a long while. Um, so the first match, oh my goodness, the first match is infamous. It is Paul Roma v Alex Wright. Um, so due to the technical difficulties, we joined the open midway through with Paul Roma in the clutches of an Alex Wright armbar. Um, what the network misses is uh, Roma jumping right as he enters the ring, attacking him while his jacket's still on, <laughs> drops an elbow to the groin, and then mocks his dance to a big cheer from the... <laughs> Lower-pitched male fans in attendance. Um, Roman looks different. He's got his hair longer. He's wearing a singlet. Um, he's pulling right down by the hair each time he nips up, but Wright's using his speed to gain an advantage on his more experienced opponent. Uh, Bobby Heenan on commentary is calling him the Wonder Punk as opposed to Das Wunderkind, the Wonder Kid. Um, Knight, Wright is 19 years old at this time, but he has been wrestling in Germany since he was 16. He's... Um, the son of Steve Wright, not the DJ, but a, a very well-known um, British wrestler who, who moved over to Germany in the in the 80s. Um, I believe he came back in, as a, a fictitious German on the, on the ITV wrestling as Bull Blitzer and had a match for Marty Jones's world title back in the day, I seem to recall. Um, Paul, Rome, uh, Paul Roman's tag partner, Paul Orndorff, comes down to the ring in his full wrestling gear and entrance robe while Roman's still locked in right's armbar. Um, there's not an awful lot happening in this match so far. Roma takes over, hits two running elbow drops, three backbreakers while seeking the approval of Orndorff and posing to the crowd and again getting a significant amount of cheers. He dumps right to the outside, plays to the crowd. When Wright finally vaults over the ropes, presumably for a crossbody block, Roma just punches him in the stomach instead. <laughs> um, Wright goes for a backslide, but it takes an eternity for Roma to go down with it, and even then he kicks out at one. Small package gets a two count, but Roma springs up and immediately attacks Wright again and then follows a long chin lock. Wright fires up with a couple of punches. Roma holds the ropes. Wright misses a drop kick, and with his opponent prone on the canvas, Roma runs up the ropes like a cat and executes one of the most beautiful top rope elbow drops mm. you'll ever see in your life. Uh, he celebrates wildly, high five with Orndorff, and then goes for the cover, which only gets a two count. Um, Roman misses a charge into the corner that allows Wright to get some offense um, a, an attempt at a simple hip toss goes wrong and Roman sort of just slumps <laughs> the canvas uh, again you get the feeling there is a, a lack of cooperation with that <laughs> to be uh, diplomatic Wright lands a spin kick only gets guess what another one count Orndorff then um, then yanks right off his opponent after he goes for a cross body block. As he turns to confront Orndorff, Roma clobs him from behind. Roma slams right, then starts talking with Orndorff. Right then drop kicks Roma into his partner, rolls him up for the three count, even though it looked like Roma kicked out a fraction of a second beforehand. Uh, right wins. Uh, should we call this a very awkward-looking match with a contrived finish? Oh, where... my goodness. Awkward? That's <laughs> right. Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> Roma was uncooperative from the get-go, and uh, it, it couldn't have looked any worse. This was not a squash match, but, you know, 
it was a squash match. It was not supposed to be a squash match. As I understand, um, Roma's job was to go out there and make uh, right shine. Just put mm. him over, put him over. No way, that didn't come across at all. Um, Roma was a bully out there. Roma was a bully. He kept right down. He kept right from shining. Um, the frequent looks of just utter bewilderment over what's going on from right were hilarious. Um, it, it was entertaining, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> well, it's even <laughs> the fact that, that Roma kept kicking out at one, which you don't really get. You, know, you, you generally you kick out at two for dramatic effect, but he that wasn't even giving count, him that. Because he, he actually kicked out. If you're looking at it technically, you really kicked out just after the two count. Really? <laughs> but the referee, who was the, was it Pee Wee Anderson, the referee? Randy yeah, Anderson, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, he counted, he counted three anyway, because he knew where well, this match isn't going anywhere. He knew. So, um, yeah, the, the Roma, Roma was being a prick. Yeah, Roma and- was being a complete prick. And um, Liam, am I right in thinking that was Paul Roma's last ever match in WCW? Oh yeah, he got fired the next day. <laughs> he, he uh, but as far as I understand it, from what I've read up, he, I think he worked some obligations on his on his contract, non televised, and then they got rid of him because why would you, after seeing that, why would you put someone like that back in the ring with with other guys? And, and I'm I'm here <laughs> speaking to. You know the, the seasoned former wrestler and a, and a man who's who's been in many capacities uh, in a wrestling ring. I haven't, but oh my god, it, it's obvious to it. If you think about where the ne- and I don't know why they botched the opening of the of the pay per view because it was you know, yeah it was, it was it was fine enough on YouTube. You'd think they'd just plonk it up and say look, it's not gonna be great. But if you think of exactly where they put you at the start, you see. Roma being put in an armbar and he's not selling it. He's having verbal <laughs> sparring contests with random members of the front row. Uh, and another thing I'm finding interesting, it's not long after that, that Paul Orndorff comes out and, and you know, you two guys who've, who've been a part of, of putting together matches and the timing of interference and people showing up to get, to get the right reaction at the right time. It was a really mm. odd time for Orndorff to come out. That's because pretty much he, he's come out early. He is Roma's tag team partner and pretty wonderful. He is also you know, very uh, involved behind the scenes. He is an agent as well as a wrestler because his career's winding down at this point. Mm. And he's come out ridiculously early, even though his only real involvement in this is the finish. And that's even if that was the in-advance planned finish was to, for, mm. to have him involved. Uh, he's been sent out to babysit and try and talk some sense into him on the quiet and if you watch if you do a rewatch you can do it very very carefully you can see the stares the little words uh for how often he's come over just to say come on roma yeah you just just try and <laughs> try and lean in and see if you can catch some some lip reading or, or what else he's saying but to no avail because from end to end this was absolutely ridiculous and normally i love going in two-footed on matches like this but i was particularly looking forward to just listening to you guys talk about because with this particular lineup, with two people with so much in-ring experience yourselves, this is where you think about it. I, I, I don't know if 
Justin, you've ever been in a situation with someone this uncooperative or you've seen it with your own two eyes? Or Dean, if you've ever had to be in this position as a manager where you've literally had to babysit an unprofessional wrestler or a clueless wrestler. But it's, it's fascinating. So I was looking forward to getting your insight on this. Well, no, nobody, nobody's tried to, uh, <laughs> nobody's tried to bully me the way that Roma bullied Wright. Uh, that would have been interesting if someone would have tried that. I don't know if I've ever come across as uh, being as uncooperative as, as Roma was. Um, it, it's very odd. Um, it's very odd because Wright was the, the the golden boy. Really, he was undefeated in WCW for quite a long time, uh, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And um, Roma obviously probably didn't take a, a liking to him. He just didn't take a liking to him and didn't want to put him over in the way he was told. So he wanted to call the match in his own in his own unique way. And it, it, it cost him. It cost him his job. Am I right in thinking that it wasn't long after Roma was released from WCW that he entered professional boxing? Was it boxing or...? Yeah, he went yeah, back because... to boxing, yeah. Because he, yeah, he had done he... it before, hadn't he? he you know, he's yeah, been yes, back that's right. Yeah, he was never seen in the wrestling business again. This was this was his last match because well, why would you want it? Why would you want someone on your show who does that on on a pay per view? I mean, it's it's one thing to do it on a house show. I mean, it's still unprofessional wherever you do, it, but it's one thing to do something like that on a house show. Another thing to do it on a live pay per view. But he had admitted in shoot interviews that uh, his professional boxing background led to him finding it really difficult to take being in a losing position even when his mm-hmm. job was wrestling and it's all staged and it's all for a greater good uh, obviously you know, there's, there's always a few egos who don't want to lose matches but by his own admission he really didn't like having to lose matches and also in those shoot interviews he pretty much confirmed everything you said Justin yes he he didn't get the hype in Alex Wright and he had no intention to put I think it really grinded his gears as well that the build-up for this match was was they, they portrayed Rome as being jealous of Alex Wright coming in and being mm. a hot star and getting the girls and he didn't like having to portray someone who who's not only jealous but would then be proven to be inferior in the ring um for me this whole Alex Wright hype train it's to see this happen in in the Hulk Hogan era of WCW is very strange because you know, people like, especially people like Alex Wright, flat didn't get these pushes. I've always had the conspiracy theory that Alex Wright was overpushed on purpose because they knew that the fans would rebel against it, so that they had a red herring to maybe deflect some of the heat off Hogan. That's my own personal Ooh. conspiracy theory. And That's another thing, I, yeah, another thing I want to squeeze in before I forget is not only was he in trouble for obviously for, for the things he did to Alex Wright, Rome deserved to be fired, but part of me wonders if you know, knowing the way those Debbie horror ups work, what might have pissed them off even more is that the man pulled off, as you said, Dean, an amazing top rope elbow drop on mm. on the pay-per-view to feature later yeah. on Randy Savage's in-ring pay-per-view debut for the fucking company. And he's gone up there. You, We all know about, you know, the company's having, you know, you don't do this guy's move, you don't upstage this yep. guy that move. And he goes up and he not only tries to, he probably does do a better... Uh, elbow yeah. drop. At, at the very yeah, least, he de- he definitely does a better elbow drop than mid nineties Randy Savage. 
Uh, that's for yeah. sure. And he goes and yeah. does that. He gets a huge pop, and they're probably at the back thinking. You you imagine Randy Savage's reaction with his reputation? <laughs> <laughs> nope, nope. Yeah, but I Roma, mean... Roma had that. Roma had that. Um, that thing about him, that cloud above him for being quite cocky and arrogant. Uh, anyway, even though you know, back in the WWF, he he had this dislike from a few boys about him for being so arrogant and mm. over the top when he gets like he's a, he's a mark for himself when he's in the ring. When he hits a move that's sweet, he 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 loves to brag about it. So <laughs> that's not going to work. I mean, that's just him yeah. putting himself over. I mean, I'll I'll say this as well from what you know, you were saying about the the attitude of you know people losing a worked wrestling match over you know over the years i've worked a great number of shows with a great number of of big names and foreign visitors and so on and i can honestly say with my hand on my heart that every single person who has ever kicked up a stink about the result of a match and not wanting to lose has been american um british wrestlers yeah british wrestlers Canadian wrestlers, Japanese is different because it's the office that don't want them losing rather than the wrestlers themselves. Japanese wrestlers, sorry, but British wrestlers and Canadian wrestlers, they're like, yeah, whatever, you know, it's part of the sh- part of the match, part of the yeah. show. One thing that always stands out in my mind was when I was um, commentating with um, 1PW, and it was Steve Carino was Booker, but I, I sort of was often like, helping him out and things. Um, and, you know, I, he'd often like come over and we'd have a chat about things. And there was a match between um, AJ Styles and Pac Neville, as, uh, as it was yeah. called them. Um, and it was really, you know, it was the biggest singles match of, of Pac's career at that time, you know, against a guy at the level of AJ Styles. And to his credit, AJ Styles was happy to put him over. Um, and I actually said to Steve Carino, the booker, don't, I said no, because I was worried that the crowd would actually reject that because they didn't think he was ready yet. And I had to, I had to explain, bearing in mind that, you know, you've got an American wrestler and an American booker for a British company. I said that the way the British mentality is, you will get pack over better by having him just lose after putting up like a valiant heroic struggle than winning which we saw like in the fwo with someone like jack xavier who has put over lots of americans and it it worked a treat because the british love an underdog and the british not i wouldn't say they love a loser but the british it's about you know it's about the taking part as opposed to the winning at all costs whereas the american psyche and you know it's just the way that that country is compared to the way this country is the american psyche i think is win at all costs and that's where that comes in i I must also say i must also say that there have been plenty of american visitors who have been absolutely fantastic and complete top pros um i'm not tarring them all with the same brush by any stretch i'm just saying that uh of the people that i that i've been at shows where they've been problems and troubles backstage with the result of a match it has been exclusively american wrestlers who have been involved in those problems anyway let's move on we are uh we are backstage with mean gene um who is joined by the wcw world tag team champions harlem heat and sister sherry um sherry cuts a weird sounding promo she's seemingly trying to put on a new york accent i think um <laughs> gene then in a, a great moment gene calls stevie ray booker t by mistake and gets told off by steve <laughs> Zara. 
Uh, Booker stumbles over his promo. He says there's one thing the Nasty Boys need to remember, and that's three things. That they're world champions, they're the baddest team in WSW, and they've got Sister Sherry in their corner. It's, he's all getting a bit of Spanish Inquisition. Oh. Um, Booker says they've got a new move concocted for tonight, the Harlem Hangover. And with that, we go on to match number two, God help us. It's Bunkhouse Buck versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Um, Buck is accompanied by Colonel Parker and Meng. Meng is dressed in a suit and sunglasses and he's looking hard as fuck because, well, he is. Um, mm-hmm. Duggan comes out with his flag and his two by four to the usual big pop. He attacks Buck before the bell like any good babyface would, as the crowd chant USA. Uh, Buck gets clotheslined over the top. They brawl at ringside briefly and then we're back in the ring with a chin lock. We then get more fighting at ringside. This this match is basically a, a well, it's a basic brawl with the occasional chin knock thrown in for good measure. It's not groundbreaking by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Duggan just about gets Buck over with a backdrop. Then we're back to the punches. There's literally nothing happening in this match and hardly any actual wrestling. Buck kicks out of a Duggan power slam and Duggan goes back to a chin lock. Buck goes to run Duggan into Colonel Parker, but Duggan instead charges at him and clumsily knocks Parker off the apron. He then lands the most awkward-looking running clothesline onto Buck to thankfully end this match after about 12 minutes. Um, Meng then gets in the ring and nails Duggan with an awesome-looking thrust kick to the jaw, followed by the Tongan death grip. Um, I just put awful. Your thoughts, Mr. Uh, Richards? (laughs) This match was one of those uh, tough-to-watch (laughs) <laughs> glad it's over type of uh, contest you knew it wasn't going to be anything special I don't know the point of it I, I question the point of the match anyway um, both of them terrible terrible workers why put them together why put them together come on I know the format of this show why put them together guys uh, it's because WCW Thank you. I've always wondered. <laughs> always wondered. Yeah, so um, I don't know why the match was thrown together like this. So WCW had a tendency to, to, to throw these matches with awful, awful wrestlers uh, and uh, just hoping that they would be able to pull something out of the bag. And this was just, uh, this wasn't one of the cases. cases. Very, very tough to watch. Very, very awkward to watch. Yeah. You know, we watch, we watch wrestling... Uh, even back back when Super Bowl Five, you know, was was first first screen, we we watch wrestling in a very different way than what we watched it back back then. Um, now we can look at it in a very analytical type of sense, and we can pick the faults very meticulously. But uh, back then, a bad match was just a bad match. We looked at it and just thought, oh, that was shit." You know, we didn't we didn't analyze why, but you know, all these years later, we can sit back and we think, well, it was bad because of this, this, this. Yeah, um, yeah this, this, this type of match, just, this stunk of WCW. Mm. And I mean, we're, yeah, we're talking about people's attitudes and so on. And, you know, I've never had the pleasure of working with him, but every single person I've known who've worked with Jim Duggan say he is the yeah. nicest man in the world and total and utter pro. And that'll be why he has never been out of work as a professional wrestler since he started. And yet, and yet, four years after this, four and a half years maybe, he would go on to follow in the footsteps of Paul Roma in completely killing off Alex Wright's gimmick because he was the first man thrown in front of Alex Wright's Berlin persona in 1999. Oh, and yes. 
and we're within 10 excruciating minutes, very similar to what we endured for this match here with Bunkhouse Buck, the mystique and the, the, the threat of the, the heel gimmick was dead in the water, which is a shame. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I agree with everything Justin says on this one. If you think about it, how many people from within the industry come across as so defensive when you criticise something that happens, whether it's what they do or what someone else does. They'll get defensive and say, you people, you know, you shouldn't be sitting there analysing it. You should be enjoying it. And this is a great example of a match where I can assure you, even when we were a lot more fresh-faced, as you said, Justin, we didn't fucking enjoy it. Don't give me that. Mm. There's no way to enjoy mm. this. They've gone out, they've decided, right, they want to run a programme this summer between Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Meng. So, you know, it's not going to be the best matches ever. But you think, you know, you've got a recognisable babyface who's over with the crowd and a fearsome-looking heel who can easily, you know, he went on to have semi-decent programmes with guys like Sting. So, OK, I can see where you want that programme. How are we going to do that programme? We're going to have... Um, like I'm going to have a heel sneak attack on a pay-per-view. Sure, that makes sense. Uh, after a bland 10-12 minute match. Oh my god. Couldn't I have just had Meng attack him straight after the opening bell? Have a disqualification. And, yes. then, and then you've made the same point and none of us had to watch this poxy match. Well, this is, this is a Nitro match. This isn't a pay-per-view match, let's face it. Nitro? Well, Nitro's a few months away here in early 1995. But it's funny you should mention nitros because we are going to be looking at them soon and we'll, we'll discuss details of that a little bit later but i'm going to plug it every opportunity i get but there were a few other things i, I noticed about this match my favorite one was that bobby heenan who uh who's in a certain condition at this, at this show i don't know if you guys noticed he, yes. was, he was definitely feeling rather good in a certain way uh he said that meng was the most dangerous man walking the face of the earth I want you to remember that later on. That's going to have some serious importance later <laughs> on in this show. Um, also, Bobby Heenan, the way he was carrying on throughout this pay-per-view, he was actually the first person who went on a little list of mine as I watched this. And you mentioned that interview, Dean, with uh, Harlem Heat and Sherry. Sherry was the second person to go on it. Uh, it's the it's the off-their-fucking-face list. <laughs> and because, because he, Heenan... I don't know how many drinks he had. This is a year after he joined WCW. This was after, you know, Jesse Ventura was replaced by Heenan and Jesse weren't happy about it. We discussed it a little bit in the Spring Stampede 94 episode. And I'm sure whenever we go through early 94, we'll look a bit more about that gradual transition from Ventura to Heenan and what happened there. And everyone was in agreement that as decent as Ventura was... Uh, especially the way he weren't always hitting full cylinders in his last year or so yeah. at WCW. Uh, going to Heenan was a step up, and yet within a year, we were starting to see Heenan at his worst as well. And by the time we got to 99-ish, just before Heenan was fired, uh, oh my God, it was it, it was sad to listen to him commentate. He, he It was the last place on the planet he wanted to be, and he admitted yeah. to such in shoot interviews and his book, etc., yeah. etc. Uh, on this one, though, he's, he's not going to be in a bad mood because he's found a way to feel great about himself. Uh, and so is and so is Sherry. I'm not I'm not sure if she was at the booze or if if, if it was a so mass on this on this occasion. But she was just I, I, 
you say she was faking an accent. I think she was just completely off her face. Slurring her words, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I'll, I'll, if there's any other examples that spring to mind about the off their face list, I'll, I'll be sure to add them as we go along. <laughs> but yeah, this oh. match, oh my God. Let, yeah, I'd rather talk about anything but this match, Let, as you let's, can tell. Let's, <clears throat> let's move on. So after um, a, an interview uh, with the Nasty Boys, who are the challengers for the tag team titles, they don't really see much of note. Uh we're ready for the next masterpiece, which is uh, alleged brother versus brother. It's oh, Kevin oh, Sullivan oh, versus oh, 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 oh. Dave Sullivan. Dean, 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 I changed my mind. Uh, you know what? Let's let's talk about Duggan versus Buck. Uh, I feel like there's a few <laughs> things we left out. Let's go back, yeah. please. The masterpiece. <laughs> the masterpiece. That was we, Buck we are, versus Duggan. Uh, the genius match. I'm sorry, we have got we have got a brick on the accelerator and we're heading we're going headfirst into the central reservation. Um, oh, no. Kevin is accompanied by the butcher, Ed Leslie, and another sign of how he was always desperate to keep Hogan on side with him. I'm sure Dave's entrance music is one of the old pay-per-view promo tunes, maybe an old Halloween Havoc. I don't know, but I'm sure. I am glad you pulled that up actually, because the first thing and there's so much to slate about this match. But the first thing that really ground my gears is this theme, whatever they've used it for before. I know, you know, we, we had this discussion in the uh, Mike Quackenbush episode about Jericho's old uh, yeah. crappy music before he got sank with a little bit of distinction. Mm. This, uh, this music... For, for whatever it was used for before, at this present moment in time, it was the Sullivan Brothers music. And he and Kevin had this music when they were on the same side. And to be honest, it's not if you track it down YouTube or maybe it'll get picked as the theme one time on one of these episodes, it's, it's not a bad little generic hill thing. It was actually suited, it, it was perfectly suited for Kevin Sullivan as the uh, as the vicious manipulative hill. It's a nice little beat for it. If you're just going to go cheap with a theme song, it suits him. So, of course, they give it to Dave in the split, the baby <laughs> face, and they give Kevin Sullivan this, this, this really weird guitar riff music. That doesn't even sound suitable for a babyface, let alone Hill. So that was the first thing that annoyed me. And trust and, me, it's and, and, and Liam, why have they done that? Because we're a bunch of fucking idiots. Oh, because because <laughs> WCW. Sorry. That, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah. What was the other thing that, that grinds your gears on this one, then? The fact that it existed. There, well, there is that, yep. yes. Yeah. So, um,. Yeah, Dave has got the uh, word EVAD written across the back oh. of his trunks. Um, because is, is he supposed to be dyslexic or something, I think, <laughs> of, in uh, Politically Correct 1995? Yeah. Um, so this one, to, to be fair, this one does start off fast. There are slams and punches. and At least we have some action, unlike the last match. Um, there is a huge size difference between the two here, but they, they look reasonably similar. It's, it's kind of not out of the realms of possibility they could actually be brothers. Um, Dave nails Kevin with a clothesline that's delivered with the right arm when Kevin was clearly expecting it from the left. Oh. Um, now, this I'm, I'm thinking this is because when, when he was, before he was the equaliser, he was American Hawkwind, and he wrestled a lot in Britain, but a lot in Germany. Yes. Over in... Explain your you. This is your field of expertise. Explain the difference between working in Germany and working in Mexico well, and Britain and America and stuff. I'm not. I'm not going to use. I'm not going to allow you to use that as an excuse for her. For him, he's 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 seasoned enough to know the difference. And as for the left side, right side um, debate, it really is more of a case of 
don't 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 worry about what side um, you're going to throw it on. The person will just expect the strike. Don't 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 place too much emphasis on the left left-sided clothesline or right-sided clothesline. I spent such a long time telling people to to always use the left side with the clothesline until I did uh, a tour in Canada and I was pulled to the side by Phil Lafont. Oh, yeah. He said, no, actually, Justin, no, don't worry about um, that. Just throw it on the, other, on, on the left side or the right side. The person... Will sh- should still be there expecting it. Don't, yeah, I suppose. Don't, sorry. Oh, so yeah. So he said, "Don't worry so much about uh, what side you're actually throwing the clothesline on." And uh, that's something that I began to just give my body up, give my body open to expect a clothesline from the left or the right uh, in late, later matches. Because I suppose that once you whip someone off the ropes, you will be standing on the left or the right side of them. So you'll know that's where it's coming in from. That's where it's coming in from. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it okay. gets a little more samey. One thing that I, when I was growing up, uh, before I was clued in to the business, I was, I was always really confused over why is it always the left leg? that the you know the wwf guys were 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 hitting were attacking all the time why is it always the left arm that they were always twisting why didn't they ever use the right arm and they, this was me as a 12 13 14 year old kid i was i was always wondering well why why if you start throwing your clotheslines on the same side all of the time people will pick up on it that's a fair point. Fair point indeed. Um, I suppose we've got to get back to this match, unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> but, um, yeah. Nice try, tri- Dean. Nice yeah. try. Uh, the Butcher trips Dave up. This allows Kevin to take control of the match. The crowd are absolutely silent for this because it has become plodding after the brisk opening minute or so. Dave's oh. punches look rather unconvincing, to say the least. A mistake from Kevin allows Dave to get more of his dodgy-looking punches in. Then out of nowhere, Kevin runs Dave headfirst into the butcher, who will remain reminded has steel plates in his face, of course, and that gets the pin with a roll-up. Butcher is writhing in pain, but Kevin seems unconcerned, having sacrificed his partner's well-being for the win. Another awful match, at least. The only only saving grace was this was at least shorter at seven minutes long. (laughs) This was terrible. Nobody ever could have expected anything more than what we got from this match. Um, I can't remember uh, Kevin Sullivan ever having a good match. And uh, I, I'm sad to say I can't remember ever witnessing a good match from Dave Sullivan either. So what did we expect from this match again? I think Kevin Sullivan had a few good matches with, I mean, there's there's a great um, Falls Out Anywhere match with Chris Benoit where they end up fighting into the toilets. I think we've talked about this before, but that's, <laughs> that was always that was always a great match, um, I think. But, but yeah, I know what you mean. They're few and far between. He was more of a yes, gimmick. They, yeah. yeah. I, I think that was the same applied to Kevin Sullivan as it did to a few other guys on this show, such as uh, Bunkhouse Buck and the Nasty Boys, in that if you put them in a in a walkabout brawl situation, they can excite you. But within the realms of a wrestling match, they're actually quite dire. Uh, so yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. This, but yeah, not not only do you not see many great matches from 
Kevin Sullivan, unless they're uh, walkabout brawls, but you say you've never seen a good match from Dave Sullivan. I don't think I've ever seen a passable match from Dave fucking Sullivan. Um, <laughs> so so I, I want to be clear here. I've never trained for professional wrestling. Lifelong fan, followed it, covered it, hopefully will continue to cover it for many years. But I've never taken a day of training. I've never been in the ring in that, in that respect. Uh, I have a mountain of respect for what guys like you two and everyone else who's been in the industry have done to perform. But with that being said, I only, when I look at Dave Sullivan wrestle, I really believe, and I still believe to this day, that I could walk in without a day of training and do a better job. A look opposite, <laughs> opposite someone like Kevin, Kevin Sullivan, for instance, who's at least experienced to walk me through a match. I feel like I'd actually do a better job than Dave fucking Sullivan, which is scary because, as Justin said, he he, he had years of experience by this point. Yeah, it's it's you, unnerving just how bad he is. Will you look at you know something like Christopher Daniels v Stephen Amell from All In recently? And that was a you know, that that guy was on his third. He's an actor who was on his third ever professional wrestling match and the f- first ever singles match, and he had you know one of the best wrestlers of this generation in Christopher Daniels to lead him through it. But that was a totally acceptable, totally passable, enjoyable match. So it can be done. Yeah. Um, look, you know, uh, general look of a wrestler. Let's just say Dave Dave Sullivan's a, a big big ass guy he's a mm. big man and um with pro wrestling that that's how a lot of wrestlers have got past you know we all know that just on look don't expect too much don't give them the opportunity to disappoint you give them instruction of what to do you know work on your strengths and dave sullivan's strength is with his look and kevin sullivan's strength actually is with his look as well really and his ability to, um, to to just intimidate you on a microphone. But um, work with your strengths. And these guys were just probably told to go out there and just do whatever they, 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 they like. They weren't given instruction. And, the, you know, the, <laughs> the result of that is what we saw. It's just a, a god-awful match. Well, we would get to the formation of another cringeworthy bit of wrestle crap in a month's half this, which is the Dungeon of Doom. But one mm. thing I will say about that, compared to the atrocity we, we've watched in it with this match, for instance, is that with the Dungeon of Doom, people at least cast, as you said, cast in an effective way to their strengths. Uh, because the the, the entire concept is a bunch of goons for Hogan to work through in that tired business model that used to work for him in the 80s, he got away with a little bit in the 90s and then people before the 90s were over completely saw through it of Hogan eating up monsters, so they had Kevin Sullivan put together this band of misfits and monsters and behemoths and he was, the best way I can describe him is if you think of an action movie where a Jean-Claude Van Damme or a Steven Seagal will take out all these henchmen and then they'll build up to this big showdown with the the evil guy's top henchman. 
normally trained yeah. just as much, you know, went to the same special ops as, as Sigawa Van Damme, and they've got that proper mirror image, good versus evil, and it's a worthy adversary. They'll have a big fight, and then when he takes care of that guy, finally, all that's left is the mastermind, who, of course, is not a, a specially trained fighter, but he's got he's put all these roadblocks in the way, and then he can finally get the, his hands on the true mastermind. And that is exactly what Kevin Sullivan Yes. That was that was his best casting. Yes. So in that yes. role, being the guy who tried to throw Roblox to Hogan, and then Hogan will finally get his hands on him. If you remember, even though it was an atrocious uh, War Games match, there was a great moment where um, Hogan and his and his fellow babyfaces beat the the uh, the Dungeon of Doom in War Games. It meant he got five minutes in the cage with the Taskmaster, to <laughs> Kevin Sullivan, and this is what led to the Giants showing up. Just when it looked like he was going to get his hands on a big bad, another huge opposition come. Yeah. So at least at least they're writing it in an effective way. But as it turns out, people weren't interested in that sort of thing in 1995, and it wasn't until 96 came and gave us a new world order that people actually found the product core cool again. Mm. Side rant over. Very good. Yes, very good. Okay, so we uh, we then get shown the Spanish announce table that's uh, got Pedro Morales at it. This one oh. in WCW doesn't get any wrestlers flying through it. It's, uh, it's in the back of the arena. And then we're back to uh, Mean Gene's backstage interview with Rage Frailer, who is in his big Bubba Rogers guys, and the Avalanche, the man formerly known as Earthquake in the WWF. And they're taking on Sting and Randy Savage later tonight. Uh, Bubba is committing the cardinal sin of wearing a striped shirt in front of a 90s TV camera, which also always comes out <laughs> as a weird optical illusion. Natch, uh, next up is match number four. It is the WCW World Tag Team Championship as the Nasty Boys challenge Harlem Heat. Um, the Nasty Boys have terrible entrance music was this one of those you'll know this Liam was this one of those WCW slam jam tunes it weren't slam jam uh, oh. because the the nasties came back to WCW after slam jam was released oh. but it, it was very much in that vein maybe it was I, I might have to do a quick look up maybe it was released on some sort of attempt at in-house album but uh, but yeah I know exactly what theme you're talking about and it's it's fucking rotten <laughs> Yeah, we're, oh, we're the boys or something, weren't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. It was basically lots of like the scratching that they had in their WWF yeah. music, which was composed yeah. by Jimmy Hart, was therefore good. Um, but yeah, trying to do it in a yeah, yeah, well, it just didn't work. So, so the Nasty Boys were the Blue Eyes in this, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just say because I, certain wrestling characters can never be convincing convincing blue eyes for me and the nasty boys were were certainly one of the tag teams that i was never convinced they could they could be blue eyes well the nasty boys i i make you half right and that's because yeah i i agree that they're really not babyface types but they're they turned babyface um the summer before this and it had led to, for, for me, it was the underrated War Games match. Because in the history of War Games, they were either really great or really awful. And the, the one in 1994, for me, was actually the one that was actually in between. It was quite good. It weren't great. People forget about it and, fear and think it's not all that. It's when you had um, Dustin Rhodes and his, and his guys against the stud stable who'd been terrorizing him for, for months with Arn Anderson turning mm. on him and bunkhouse bark and all, all that lot. So 
Dusty Rhodes jumped Was in. that where they legit broke his arm? Isn't that what the horseman did to Dusty? Yeah, I'm sure there's an angle where where they where they um where they Wasn't attack him and go for his arm. And I'm sure I read been. that they they accidentally legit broke it. I'm gonna to have to look that no. up now. You've piqued my curiosity. <laughs> but they they did the thing where Dusty has has jumped back into the ring just on a at this point he's not a full time wrestler but he can come back and do a war games. He's synonymous with war games. It makes sense that he's by his son's side in war games against the guys that have been terrorizing his son. They need two more guys, and they did the Bayface turn where they convinced the nasty boys to join them. They they wanted people just as bad, just as nasty, which I liked it. It was a nice touch for someone like me who likes his little little touches because it had all started because um, Dustin Rhodes had recruited Arn Anson to fight the Stud Stable, and he told Arn Anson he wanted the, the he wanted the old Arn Anson. He went the ruthless, take no prisoners, mm. nasty person. And Arn Anson promised he would get him and then turned on him and DDT'd and beat the crap out of him. So there was a nice little touch with that where they recruited Nasty Boys on the same sort of thing. So there was always that suspense, could they actually trust him? So I kind of liked that angle. But yeah, after that, you had Nasty Boys were still baby faces. And as you said, Justin, what the hell are you going to do with them in the long term? So... So they had that one little moment where them working on the good side made sense and it was never going to last. In this sense, I think because this uh, feud had just started here with Harlem Heat and we're going for a few months. And it's one of the things... It's one of them things where on paper they're thinking, right, we've got two of our most well-known teams, two sort of in-ass creations. I know Nazis went to WF and got even more exposure, but they started off with NWA, WCW stint, didn't they? And that feud with the Steiners. So yes. we've got two of our teams here. We'll put them against each other. We'll hype it up as being the two best teams. Going after the tag titles, what can go wrong? Well, this match can go wrong. Every other match they have <laughs> after that can go wrong. And I'll let Dean detail exactly why. Yeah. <laughs> and there are this feud does go on and there are some wonderful kind of stats and things about this feud that could only happen in WCW as we'll, we'll cover in a moment so yeah my as I'm writing notes I'm thinking my actual my stream of consciousness was this should be a good match between two proper established lifelong tag teams mm. um Tony Schiavone talks about how Harlem Heat are real life brothers quote much like the Andersons Mm. Um, <laughs> our referee is Nick Patrick who both commentators mentioned will have a tough job of controlling this one so um, just to put this in perspective Harlem Heat were enjoying their first reign as world tag team champions they'd go on to have 10 separate runs with the titles um, Booker Mix misses an axe kick gets crotched on the ropes the nasties are in control early on um, it dawned on me how the nasty boys have never changed their image or their attire over the year they've always looked the same mm. um I would, you know, you look at someone like Chris Jericho or, you know, so many different people that they evolve and they change with the times, but but not the nasty boys. Same haircut, same look, same everything. They probably uh, literally never change their clothes. It's probably the same. You'd get the, the sort of the, 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 the over shirts that would be 
slightly different design, but generally the same sort of thing. But yeah, anyway. Um... Sags even wore that exact attire. He did an episode of a show I like called Man Versus Man Food. Man vs. Food, And yes. he wore those clothes. So I'm led to believe that he literally never changed. He lives in them, quite possibly. Um, Booker T tags in Stevie Ray, who takes over on Sags. He misses a charge into the corner. God knows how many matches that is now where there's a missed charge into the corner. Um, that allows Sags to tag Knobs in. The Nazis are back in charge, making quick tags in and out, and they're working on Stevie Ray's <laughs> left leg. Um a brief flurry of offense from Harlem Heat ends when Stevie Ray misses a leg drop. The Nazis are back on top again and back with the quick tags to the spin kick from Stevie sends Sags to the floor where he gets attacked by Booker and Sherry, who levels him with a thunderous right hand to the jaw. Um, the champions slow the pace down with a chin lock from Stevie Ray on Sags as Nobs acts as cheerleader from his tag rope. Booker T gets tagged in. He lands the axe kick on Sags, but uh, takes his time going for the cover and Sags kicks out at two. Stevie Ray misses a knee drop off the middle rope. Sags nails a power slam, makes the hot tag to Nobs, who takes over on both Stevie Ray and Booker T. Nobs goes for the pinfall after a big splash, but Booker T makes the save. Sags comes in and throws him out of the ring over the top rope. Sherry comes off the top, but accidentally hits Stevie Ray in the head with her shoe. Nobs rolls Stevie up for a three count, and we have new world tag team champions, or do we? Randy Anderson jumps in the ring and tells Nick Patrick about Booker T being thrown over the top rope, and the nasty boys are disqualified. This is like a precursor to VAR in the World Cup or something. Um, it appears that we have <laughs> two referees in this match, but I don't actually recall this ever being mentioned prior to the finish. Um, everyone just said how hard a job Nick Patrick was going to have. Um, I thought this was a solid enough match. I think probably because I'd experienced the last two matches and, you know, it's, <laughs> compared to that, just it had a terrible, terrible finish. Um, as a side note, the Nasty Boys would go on to win the tag team titles from Harlem Heat two months later at Slamboree. But by the time they'd won them, they'd already lost them 17 days beforehand back to Harlem Heat at a WCW Worldwide taping at Disney. Why? Because WWF? Not quite. Oh, it's not, it's not the answer on my card, I'm afraid. I'll have to hand it over oh. to You've got to love a show that triggers us reciting the, the title of our own podcast this many times. <laughs> We're halfway through the pay-per-view, ladies and gentlemen. We've already <laughs> run that joke three times. And I can I can look into the future and see it come up at least once or twice more. So, uh, yeah, that, that just hammers home just how rotten this show is. But, yeah, after those last two matches, what do we need next? A dusty finish. Yes, yep. please. Oh, yeah. my God. Um, 20 minutes. All in all, even though I'm not really a fan of either teams, I must say, um, but 20 minutes match, how long? It was yeah. to deliver a dusty finish. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Again, what a waste of time. What a waste of time. Why? Yeah. What, what benefit yeah. could have come from this? Do your dusty finish on the TV shows and then have some kind of stipulation, some something on the pay-per-view to give you your proper finish. Yeah. That, isn't that what the pay-per-views are meant to do, just to give you some definitive conclusion? Yes. To these things? So why, why you don't do dusty finishes? 
is on pay-per-views. You know, as you say, you build them up on your on your TV shows leading up to the big payoff. But there you go. It's uh, who am I to who am I who am I to criticise those that 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 were getting paid lots of money to make these decisions? And WCW wondered why pay-per-view business tanked right when the business model was at its hottest. They were left scratching their heads. But fret not well, when you... it can't be our fault, can yeah, it? It can't yeah. be our fault. There's got to be another reason why it's, uh, it, it's bombing. But fret not, Dean, when you talk about wanting stipulation bluffs, oh my God, we'll be getting that in the next month and then some. Uh, oh, yeah. These two fight uncensored 95, and I really don't want to go into that too much because even though this this is a glorious choice for a because WCW, so thank you for that, Justin. But whoever, whichever <laughs> poor sap makes us go through uncensored 95 again, oh my god, that might be our first ever four hour episode. <laughs> it'll it'll run longer than the pay per view us talking about and going two footed on everything about that and, and and almost almost every match on this show actually would have a a stipulation rematch on so imagine all this drosh but mm. with even more putrid decision making oh I can't wait well we we go backstage again uh to mean jeans interview pit it's promo time with sting and savage uh mean jeans says how this is among the four or five best pay-per-views he's ever been involved in um, <laughs> dean add him to the office face list because he's clearly had something well, and add well, randy just... savage as well while you're at it yeah, I just um, I just thought he must have forgotten an awful lot of pay-per-views he's worked on. <laughs> um, maybe yeah, all but four or five. Um, Savage walks up, says, I'm not talking, and then walks about angrily in the background. Um, he does come back in a couple more times just to say, I'm not talking, while Sting says nothing of importance, but credit to him for not losing his train of thought, obviously, often did. Um, he tries to get the Macho Man hyped up, but Savage just says, I'm not talking again, and they both walk off. Um, we then go back to Shivani and Heenan, who plug the next pay-per-view, the infamous Uncensored. Um, and then we have a video package detailing the feud between the Blacktop Bully and Colonel Parker on one side and Dustin Rhodes on the other. Now, the, the trouble with this video package is it really doesn't tell us anything about the history between them um, other than something vague about Bully being sent to jail or something. And just compare this to the WWF recap packages at the same time and it is absolutely chalk and cheese I, yeah. seriously I don't think I've ever seen a less useful video package in my whole life well to be fair Dean it wasn't helped by the fact that there literally wasn't much to say they had introduced uh, Barry Darso uh, as this black top bully character he was the, someone had the bright idea to literally have someone a wrestler who would have the gimmick where he is a heckler He's an obnoxious, loud heckler who had a horn and would insult the good guys and get on their nerves. And it led to a thing where he had a fight with Dustin Rhodes and he, get, he got thrown into jail because, quote unquote, he's not a performer. He's not a wrestler. And apparently Colonel Robert Parker, who was was sentenced to feud with Dustin Rhodes for the rest of his life until Dustin got him out of that a month later by getting <laughs> fired decided that because he had this bad blood with Dustin and he still didn't like Dustin Rhodes 
six months after the feud with the stud stable sh should have ended. He paid his bow and said, right, you work for me now. Go and get him. And got him he did in what would be the most boring match of the show if we didn't have yep. all that tripe before us. <laughs> um, sluggish would just... There was no flow, apart from no reason. There's no flow to the match at all. I actually forgot I was watching it. I remember sitting, just looking at the screen, and my mind just went somewhere else. And then I clicked <laughs> back in, and I forgot I was actually watching a match. It was just so sluggish. There was nothing to it. It really exposed Barry Darso as pretty much the predecessor for Billy Gunn, didn't it? A, a guy who <laughs> was more than capable as a mechanic in a tag team. With a gimmick or with a mouthpiece, they do the tag work absolutely fine. And then you'd put him in a single situation and time would stand still. Well, yeah, you look at you look at him in a tag team as Demolition Smash or as Crusher Khrushchev back in the NWA. Mm. Compare that to Blacktop Bully or Repo Man, and that proves mm. your point to, completely. But um, we we have Nick Bockwinkle at ringside, um, who is the WCW commissioner. Um, he states that Meng is not allowed at ringside, otherwise he'll suspend Colonel Park from WCW. <laughs> so there's no Meng. Um, Dustin Rhodes comes out in his swish-looking red, blue, and yellow sequin jacket that Greg Lambert loves. Um, Bully tries to jump Rhodes from behind, but Rhodes stops him and takes him down. And for the second match in a row, Heenan says this won't be a match, it'll be a fight. Um, Bully then clips Rhodes' knee from behind. Rhodes fights back, sending Bully to the outside. The match turns from a brawl to a wrestling match, despite what Heenan said, with uh, Rhodes applying a head scissors, an armbar, and a hammerlock, which seems very odd for such what has been billed as such a personal and heated feud. Um, it's mostly Rhodes on offense in an, an unspectacular match so far. The match then spills to the floor where the commentators note how Colonel Parker doesn't want to involve himself in the match without Meng there to protect him. The match turns when Bully hits a clothesline and Rhodes takes his trademark spinning bump. He's thrown to the floor. Parker lays a few kicks in safer than those that Rhodes is in no position to fight back. It's all Bully from here on the inside and outside of the ring using the brawling tactics that befit his character. Um, Bully comes off the middle rope, but he's cut off with a clothesline from Rhodes. Rhodes hits his bulldog finisher, but Colonel Parker puts Bully's foot on the bottom rope to break the count. Rhodes grabs Parker and suplexes him into the ring, which Parker obviously sells big. Um, Bully then charges at Rhodes, who sidesteps. Bully flies over the top rope. Rhodes goes to suplex Bully back into the ring, but a groggy Parker grabs Rhodes' leg. Bully falls onto him for the three count. This match got better towards the end, but given that it's meant to be such a vicious, bitter personal feud, it really didn't have any intensity of what the feud was billed at for me. The finished was the best part, um, but only because we've used that finish in our time, Dean. <laughs> well, it's, it's the, uh, it's the hope, the uh, warrior rude WrestleMania five. Um, yeah. Finish. Yeah. The old Heenan. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've around, used yeah. that many times myself before indeed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, 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 the biggest pain for me about this match is, is as, as I touched upon before it is literally just a way of dragging out. And I've heard of the idea of wanting to recapture magic, making lightning mm. strike twice, but let's be honest, right? I, I had a soft spot for Dustin Rhodes waging war on Colonel Robert Parker and his stud stable. It weren't bad, but it weren't amazing. It wasn't like, feud of the year, match of the year stuff. It wasn't that 
brilliant. It was bringing in so much business for WCW either. So especially for them to decide, yeah, we're going to try and stretch this out and bring in another stiff for him to feud with. And as we, as we mentioned, when we covered Spring Stampede 94, there was a there was a certain brass tacks chemistry between Dustin Rhodes and Bunkhouse Buck, but Barry Darso can't bring that out here. It's a tedious match, which is essentially just trying to repeat what we've had for over a year now with Dustin Rhodes. And to that extent, when both of these guys would get fired, sorry for the spoilers, uh, the following month in a match that I'm not even going to mention here because that full glory deserves to be saved for Uncensored 95 when we get to it. But when these guys got fired, I think for Dustin's sake, it was a it was a blessing in disguise because as as polarizing as the Goldust character was, we look back now with 2018 eyes and say, yeah, you know, it's a legendary character. It made him a lot of money, synonymous with it. He made it work. But even at the time for the first year where people thought we might kill his career, oh my God, he's probably just thankful he's not feuding with Colonel Robert Parker anymore. Well, I, were you there, Justin, when we were watching WrestleMania, was it 13 in 96, the Michaels Hart match? marathon match when we were watching that Ooh. at Andre's place with um our Brian Clark Adam Bomb. Yes, actually. Yeah. Yes. Because we, we'd we'd basically back in ninety six we'd done a three date tour with with Brian Clark, um formerly known as Adam Bomb. And it just so happened that the 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 final night of the of the tour coincided with WrestleMania Sunday. And we watched it live yes. and that had the Roddy Piper Gold Dust match, where Gold Dust ends up um, <laughs> stripped out of his suit and he's wearing stockings and suspenders. And I'll never forget because Brian just shouts, "That's his career dead right there." <laughs> and so, you know, fair, fair enough, it wasn't. He, he's still, you know, he's still doing that character all these years later. Yes. So. Okay, so it's, it's time for Mean Gene to interview Vader. But before then, Shivani talks about how Vader destroyed four wrestlers competing in a tag match in the main event pre-show. Um, they talk about how much security there is backstage to keep Hogan and Vader apart. Um, Gene looks terrified. He's really selling Vader as a monster. But Vader, sadly, isn't the same without Harley Race by his side. But Race, by this point, had retired as a manager due to injuries that he'd suffered in a car accident. Um, after a moment back with Shivani and Heenan, we're back to Mean Gene, who is now out by the entrance ramp. He introduces Ric Flair for an interview. Um, th- this feels like it's killing any momentum the show has had, not that it had much momentum to start with. <laughs> um, they keep talking about whether they saw Flair in Vader's limousine and if Flair has got anything to do with Vader. Flair says he'll be watching the main event from the front row, and he also says what hotel he'll be staying at afterwards. Um, I hope that's legit. Um, Flair takes his son. <laughs> Flair takes his seat at ringside and immediately starts arguing with the fan in the third row, which I think is brilliant. Um, <laughs> and then it's time for match number six. It is Big Bubba Rogers and the Avalanche versus Sting and Randy Savage. It's time for the showdown of Hogan's mates. Um, they're both oh. talking about wanting Hogan, but the trouble is we've seen it all before in high-profile matches in the WWF five years earlier. Um, this was Savage's first ever WWE pay-per-view match, as Liam mentioned earlier. Um, as Shivani says, this is where the stars are. 
it's notable that Savage is back to wrestling without a shirt on, which tells you everything you need to know about WCW's drug testing policy or lack thereof. They've given Savage familiar and reliable opponents to showcase him to the WCW audience. Um, naturally, the babyface team start with Sting, so we can build up to Savage's introduction in that match. Um, it's incredible to note as well that Avalanche is only 31 years old at this point, but he looks so much older. I think it's That's incredible. The, uh, because of the hairline, I think. Um, I did actually find um, it's on um, on YouTube. There's one of his. It must be one of his first um, matches from 1987, I think it is, or 88 for new for uh, all Japan in tag match okay. because he, he'd come from the world of sumo, um, yeah. if you remember. And yeah. he he looked. He's a lot lighter. Um, Strangely enough, given that he'd come from sumo wrestling, where where they're generally heavier, but um, he he looks he looks younger and he's got slightly more hair, but he still looks he doesn't look anything like yeah you know, a man in his early early twenties at that point. I think he was just wow. one of those guys who who always looked old. Um, yeah, so he, he always he was he was always yeah he just um, I I was surprised how how young he was. Um, when he died, Tenter's age was very, yeah, it, was, it, it confused me a lot of times. I did think he was a lot older than than, than he really was, but uh, I don't know what, uh, I, I don't know. I'd like to agree with you about the hair, but there's just something about um, a lot of wrestlers at that time that their, their ages just, just did not mix, uh, did not match well with what I, uh, what I assumed. Uh, how old they are, so I assume they were. Yeah. Yeah, had, I did have the pleasure of, of meeting him once, and he's one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Um, such a shame that he, he passed away so early. Did, um, did you meet him when he came over to the UK? Yeah, met him at um, uh, Fairfield Hall, Croydon. He was there. Yeah, I, I, never, I never got to meet him. Yeah, I would have no. liked to, though, because, uh, again, he was one of the characters. He was one of the characters that I remember... Rooting yeah. for when I was <laughs> when I was younger, just coming into uh, uh, pro wrestling myself, I was um, a big fan of his. So yeah, okay, that's nice. Yeah. Okay, so um, Sting's on the offense. He can't knock Avalanche off his feet. Bubba catches him coming off the ropes and tags him, taking over on Sting. Bubba climbs to the top, but Savage stops him leaping off. Sting then nails him with a superplex. Um, Bubba gets clothesline to the outside by the babyface corner, and Savage leaps off the top rope to the floor with one of his trademark axe handles. Savage then tags in as Shivani comments on how good his physique looks. I refer you to my previous <laughs> comments. Um, the camera keeps cutting to Flair sitting in the crowd. Um, Savage is in complete control over Bubba. Then Avalanche tags in, and Savage looks apprehensive. He tries to slam Avalanche, but is unsuccessful. And this turns the tide in favor of the hills till Avalanche, ironically, misses an Avalanche splash into the corner and Savage tags in Sting. Sting goes for the Scorpion Deathlock. Bubba goes to break it up, but Savage leaps onto him to stop him. Sting nails both opponents with Stinger splashes till he's caught and slammed by Avalanche while Flair taunts Savage at ringside, which distracts Savage from the task in hand. Uh, of course, Savage and Flair had quite the rivalry a few years ago in the WWF, in case you're noticing a theme here. Um... 
Sting slams Avalanche to a big pop. He tags in Savage, who is attacking both opponents at once. Now all four men are in the ring. Savage slams Bubba, lands the Macho Man elbow, but the ref won't count because Avalanche is the legal man. Sting comes off the top, nearly losing his balance in the process with a crossbody block for the win. It's a clean win for the babyfaces, although I'm baffled as to why Savage didn't get the win with his elbow drop, given it was his first pay-per-view match. And uh, yes. Savage continues to argue with Flair after the match. You know... As bad as uh, the whole pay-per-view was, this match was the one that I could have actually sat down and enjoyed. Enjoyed maybe as a little bit of an overstatement. But um, the, the, the characters on here, they all provided their, their own traditional um, offences. Savage delivered everything that Savage is known for delivering in a way that he delivers it. Same with Sting, same with uh, Tenta Avalanche, and uh, same with uh, Trailer. And they all delivered the same style of wrestling, just in a different setting. That's that's quite interesting that um, that they did that. I I thought they would try to change it up, especially Savage. I was expecting Savage to change it up a little bit, but he still came in and delivered the same type of Savage match. And the Sting, Sting, uh, might upset a few people, but Sting is just a one-trick pony. Sting can't wrestle outside of his his comfort zone, and uh, that's what I've noticed about him. He's very limited. He's, he's stuck in his own comfort zone, and it takes a lot to try and shift him out of it. Um, Tenta, Tenta's gimmick in itself, uh, sorry, Avalanche, his gimmick in itself um, is just a big bully, big monstrous bully pushing people around. He does that well, so he sticks with it. Yeah, um, yeah but I, I could I could get into this match. This match was, was, wasn't as bad as um, everything else. So, um, yeah, yeah, I sat through this match and I didn't want to actually turn off during this match, which uh, is massive praise, I guess. <laughs> Well, it, it had a good pace to it, it and it and the crowd were into it because of who was in it and the level of yeah. You know, I think they yeah you know, they see these people as stars, and that always helps when you got a crowd that are into the match. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm fully supportive of them sticking to their comfort zones in this instance because for the first time, I believe, on this show, we've got performers giving the crowd what they want and this is in this instance <laughs> obviously they want sting and savage to have a big win they've got two you know over the hill at this point especially in this situation but formidable enough adversaries and two guys i have to say you know um big boss man ray trailer whatever whatever name we give him because he's gone through about five by this point in wcw <laughs> and avalanche which is just you know let's get him as close to fucking earthquake as we legally can get away <laughs> yes. with and listen yep. to his theme tune on this and you'll see that's the case as well they're really trying to just <laughs> yeah you know, it's absolutely shameless but those two guys it's funny the difference it is as far as quality sheer quality of work goes um there's not a gulf of difference between guys like them and guys like Barry Darso and Kevin Sullivan. But what I like about them is, you know, they, they, they mm. tune into their opponents a little better. They, they work the crowd while they're, while they're wrestling a little more. Uh, and, they, and especially when trailer was a little more agile as a result, they can do a, a, a 
they can do a bit more. They can do a bit better. And in this instance, they're, they're human crash pads for, for two guys who you want to see win. And that's exactly what they gave them as. I thought it was a, a fun enough match because of that. Yeah. And yeah, maybe maybe they could have finished with a big elbow, but I kind of appreciate their attempt at a creative finish. In Because um, when, when Sting has done the crossbody, what, that wasn't enough to get the big mighty avalanche over. But what happened was he's actually tripped up over trailer, big Bubba Rogers, who's lying prone on the floor because he's still out from the elbow. And that's, you know, and that's been enough. He's got him over the crossbody. He's tripped over Bubba Rogers and he's got the pin. So I kind of like that little finish as well. But for the first time on this show, we have truly got sank. The least people can go. And I said about earlier, you know, about how, People in wrestling get defensive and say, yeah, stop overanalyzing. Well, first off, we can overanalyze whatever the hell we like. But secondly, primarily a wrestling fan will want to sit down and enjoy it. And if they're going to go under the hood, it's mostly because there's reasons to go under the hood. And a match like this, honest to God, you know, you give me that and I'll sit down and enjoy it like a like a 10 year old. Mm. I mean, uh, another cool. thing, another thing to bear in mind, talking about. Ray Trader and John Tent or whatever names and gimmicks they had, they were in constant employment in the wrestling business. You know, from being Big Bubba Rogers, then going to the WWF as the Big Boss Man, then coming in as I think it was the the Boss and the Guardian Angel, and had a whole load of gimmicks there. Then he was back in the WWF. He was in in all Japan. Um, you know, with with um, with. John Tenter, he was in WCW when he finished up there. He went to, I think he was in All Japan again. He went to the WWF under a mask as Golga. And there's a reason that people like that keep getting employed because, you know, and this this is probably something that, that passed Paul Roma by because, you know, they are guys who are, I think you said it yourself, Liam, they're good hands. They're safe yeah. hands. Yes. They're professional. Yes. They're serviceable. We've had this discussion on several episodes. There's a lot of recurring themes you always come up with. And one of them is the whole bricks and mortar thing. And, and WCW yeah. over the years has had its fair share of really good mortar guys. Uh, and these two are a great example of that. They're never, they're never going to be amazing although to be fair Bubba Rogers had his times you know I've, I thought he was really good in the early 90s when he dropped all that weight he was really good at one point but even even in his later years he knew how to slot himself into his opponent's situation and, and give a watchable match which is the difference between guys like him and guys like Barry Darso who just you know in a single situation it drains the life out you're watching it where, uh, you know, Ray Trailer will give the babyface debits, even if it's in the comfort zone, they know how to do it in a remotely entertaining manner. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct usage of, of, of guys like that um, is very important. Um, as capable as people are, um, like Ray Trailer, um, as, com- as, as capable as they were to put anyone over, um, yeah, you've still got to apply them in the right setting um, to make it interesting for the fans to or to care about. Really, they're capable of putting their opponent over, but are they capable of making the fans give a give a mm. fuck about it? There's a reason why Trailer wound down. I think gradually, bit by bit, he would slip down the card. Not only that, but if you think about his return to WWF in the Attitude Era, no less, where you'd think. Uh, 
wrestlers who could easily be labelled as dinosaurs would be even more exposed in that light. He's come back, and they've to, to be fair, they for for a little while they used him perfectly as as a bodyguard, enforcer type, a ruthless guy. It was great watching him go up against Austin. If you had Bossman versus Austin in a in a proper wrestling feud for the title, it wouldn't hold your interest because you're like, well, why why would Steve Austin need more than five minutes to take care of him? But he wasn't. He was he was that guy. As as I made the action movie reference earlier, he was the guy with a nightstick attacking him from behind, enforcing the 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 boss Vince McMahon, and it made sense. It made complete sense that Vince would have a guy like him doing thug-like actions on on Austin. So they made him work again, and yet it still ensured, as Dean said, that they had a safe, dependable pair of hands in there with him. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, Um, so we go back to uh, Shivani and Heenan after this, um, and Heenan goes on on a massive rant. He does a fantastic job, I think. He's saying about how Hogan hasn't shown his face at all. He's clearly scared of Vader. He's been running from him ever since he arrived in WCW. Um, although Shivani then does wreck this slightly by saying Hogan will be interviewed in a moment by Mean Gene. Um, we then <laughs> see... <laughs> yeah, good, good stuff. Also, <laughs> also uh, Heenan, you know, as good as the rant was, and it's good to see that uh, Jack Daniels was providing some boost in the right way. Um, there was one thing that struck me about this was that, uh, well, for, it, within this run, Heenan refers to Vader, as Sanka touched upon earlier, he refers to Vader as the most dangerous man in wrestling. And you'll probably be thinking to yourself, hang on, that's a bit weird, because apparently Ming's the most dangerous man in wrestling. But fret not, yeah. because in that preceding tag team match, he also pointed out that Randy Savage is the most dangerous <laughs> man in wrestling. <laughs> and at this point, the thing that annoys me the most is that Heenan never took the time to tell everyone that me, Liam Happ, was the most dangerous man in wrestling. <laughs> Because I must have been yeah. the only person who didn't get that treatment. Surely, based on what's happened on this pay-per-view, Paul Roman's the most dangerous man in wrestling. Uh, or, or Dave Sullivan's the most dangerous man to watch. Yeah. Um, we, then, we then see a video package promoting Vader. It shows him destroying various people over the years, including him powerbombing Hogan at the Clash of Champions event in January. We then go to Hogan with Jimmy Hart and Mean Gene backstage. Now... I think um, we, we've uh, we've touched on this uh, off air in the days leading up, and I think Liam yes. and I are polar opposites of this. I thought this promo was awful. Hogan is smiling; he doesn't look scared in any way. In fact, Gene is selling the danger of Vader ten times better than Hogan is. Hogan then starts talking about Flair instead, and it's just to me terrible, completely counterproductive. He's not selling. Any kind of yep. fear, any kind of worry about Vader, and at all, yep. when, especially when you consider how the early part of the match goes. What's your take of it, Liam? Well, first off, the, the whole flair thing I agree with because I think the flair involvement as as an overall directive, you know, from going right up to the top of Crave, the decision to have flair smeared all over the top two of this matches I'm not a fan of but they were determined just to get him back on TV as quickly as possible everyone knew back at Havoc 94 I think even those people who weren't reading The Observer knew that Flair wasn't gone forever and he'd be back very soon because that's just wrestling and Flair at the same time 
and he, uh, you know their reputations collectively preceded them but uh already to, no, no matter how much you know it's coming when it does finally come it still leaves a bad taste and it just it, it does it distracts from everything it's terrible uh as for his demeanor in the interview to be honest I know there are little things wrestlers can do, even when they're really intense wrestlers, to to sell uh, a certain gravitas. For instance, my favourite one will always be the Ultimate Warrior walking to the ring at WrestleMania 7 for the for the career match with Randy Savage. The man who yeah. run around blowing himself up, he walked with purpose and with caution, and that was incredible. That was a great... Uh, whoever made that decision, that was really good. Um, but again, you, you've... There's only so much you can do, and it's it's a lot to ask of someone like Hulk Hogan to have him completely do a, you know, I'm sure you don't want improving Bobby Heenan right by any means, because no matter what you think of Hogan, that's not a strong babyface. But I felt like he actually put Vader over with his words, because when you listen to the part where he talks about the match, he did a really good job of not just stressing the threat of Vader, but the importance of this match, because it's worth remembering this was, and, and for, for a concept like this to actually involve Hogan of all people at this point was, was incomprehensible, but this was a legit wrestling dream match. Yes. This, this was one of the few scenarios, especially in Hulk Hogan's case, where people were excited at the prospect of seeing these two wrestle in the yeah. ring. And I thought Hogan did a great job of, uh, I think the lines he used was that every giant he slayed in his career, and as I said earlier, the, you know, he tapped into this formula for way too long. He spent decades wanting to just gobble up big intimidating opponents. Yeah. He said every giant he slain was just to prepare him for the meeting with Vader, a meeting, he said, that he knew was inevitable. And I thought some of those lines were really good. Uh, Hogan's delivery is Hogan's delivery. I don't think it detracted from it, but it was always going to be like that. But I thought his words were a good one. And it was probably, considering he's, you know, his promos are very famous and his whole persona is very famous. But if you if you really do go under the hood, he's a guy who just repeat dude, brother, which he admitted in an interview was because he'd forget his lines or people's names and he'd have to just take a moment and say, go dude, brother, 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 just to, yeah. just to slow himself down by his own admission. And for someone who's known for that, who's known for stumbling over his words and who's known for being very generic, I actually thought this was... Off the top of my head, from what I can remember, it was probably his second best oration behind the infamous Bash at the Beach 96 prone when he turned heel, which was done live in the ring with, wow, de okay. with debris being thrown at his head and he still pulled off an amazing heel turn yeah. promo. So that would never be touched. But the words he put into this one, even though certain directive could have made it better, uh, I appreciated it. And as we'll get into the match, there were things he did with Vader that I appreciate as well. Okay, so let's uh, let's go on to the match. So this is our main event. It's match number seven. It is the WCW World Heavyweight title match, Vader versus Hogan. This is, as you say, Liam, this is a dream match. This I remember when this happened when I was a teenager, and I was, I was a huge Vader fan, as we we mentioned when we, we, we did a special episode paying tribute to the man after his, his passing. And, yeah, this was just... I was the thing I was worried about was would this just become a generic Hulk Hogan match or would Vader be allowed to do his his usual kind of offense? So this is obviously something we will 
we'll find out as the match goes on. Um, it's noted that Vader's the current reigning US champion, which automatically makes him the number one contender to the world title in WCW, um, although he's not announced as such and doesn't have the belt with him. He undoes the hard work when, you you know, it puts over the belt of Sankey Paul when it does make a champion a contender for the belt above it, but then he doesn't even bother coming out with it and no yeah. one can remember that he's the champ. <laughs> yeah. So one step I... forward, two steps back. <laughs> Why is that, Liam? Um, I don't know. I'm going to hand over to Justin for the bonus well, point. I, I, I messed up last time, so I'm going to give it another shot. Because WCW... Right! Ding, 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 ding. I got it! So, um, Hogan's got Jimmy Hart with him um, in the never particularly useful role of male babyface manager. Um, Hogan and Vader stare down while Michael Buffett does the intros. Hogan looks tiny compared to Vader. Mm. So, we start off, uh, Hogan hits four right hands to Vader, who no-sells it and removes his mask. Uh, we see Great Muta minus the face paint at ringside. Um, along with um, Sonny Ono, who's not a TV character at this point in time and therefore isn't mentioned at all. Um, Hogan backs Vader into a corner, unloads right hands on him, followed by a whip into the turnbuckles and the clothesline, which again, Vader no-sells. And now Hogan is looking concerned and the crowd are really starting to get into this. Hogan changes tack, tries to wrestle Vader using an arm ringer and a short arm scissors, taking the big man to the canvas. But Vader breaks this easily and gets the match back to a vertical base. Vader then backs Hogan into the corner and un unloads his trademark big right hands, followed by a short clothesline as the crowd once again erupt. There's a clear and reasonably large pro-Vader contingent in the crowd here. Um, yeah. Maybe because he's old school WCW and Hogan's still deemed to be an outsider. Or maybe because hope people are, are tired of Hogan's dated babyface routine um, by, by now. I, I don't know. What do you guys think? I would have said that. I would have said people were getting a bit tired of Hogan at that stage. Certainly. I did notice I did notice the uh the crowd um backing up Vader quite quite a few times during the match. I mean Hogan Hogan's mystique um didn't didn't ride immediately um during during the opening stages of the match. Uh Vader Vader wasn't really the biggest opponent Hogan's ever had. Um but he convincingly presented himself as one of the most domineering in this in this in this match. Um, certainly came across as being a big threat to Hogan. So uh, and the crowd picked up on that. The crowd Ooh. certainly picked up on that. Yeah, the act was growing tiresome as early as Royal Rumble '92, if you remember, when he was in the ring with Sid. Uh, and yes, different company and all that. But if you think about it. You know, wrestling is wrestling. Wrestling fans are wrestling fans. And we are now in the 90s where we've got national television products across mm -hmm. cable and what have you. So, no, people were already tired of it. And the switch from WWF to WCW and the fact they, unlike WWE, they they actually ran with the Hogan Flair program that people did want to see meant that there was a honeymoon period. So, for six months, yeah, he could get away with things. But... By this point, he then, you know, apparently run Flair out of town. He headlined Starcade with fucking Ed Leslie, of all people. Yeah. And he was well and truly <laughs> looking to get into his little formula of gobbling up the monsters. And that included yeah. Vader. 
and obviously it was it was you can't you can't go through the monsters of WCW and not face Vader. But Vader had that certain vow of protection about him in that yes, he was gonna get protected anyway a little bit more than an avalanche but if you remember correctly at the time i believe he was the uwfi champion and and he was he he was not going to do the job while holding that belt so both both guys were very much a a, a stalemate as we'll soon see let's see oh you say you say about the hogan flair program and i i'm sure we'll get on to the covering uh, it was bash at the beach 94 wasn't it um Mm. And havoc the blow off. Yeah, the, the, the first that, that first match, just the way that it was just the way that Hogan ran through him in the formulaic Hogan way, despite it being Ric Flair in WCW, uh, and Flair just never ever ever got the upper hand against Hogan. So no. most people, I think, had lost all interest in that feud by now because it was totally one sided. Yeah, I think Meltzer put it best when he covered that feud. Uh, there was a clash of the champions where they had a match. This was between Bash at the Beach and the career cage match at Havoc. And Hogan wouldn't put him over. And if he'd have done that and then won the title back in the big cage match, fair enough. But um, I think they, they were doing that whole masked man thing, which turned out to be Ed Leslie. So he got attacked and he came back and it was still a disqualification. But if Flair, especially considering how much help... They piled onto it. If Hogan had just done one job for him, you'd yeah. have had a blow off. But who who wants yeah. to see a third when you know he's as you said he's run rampant over him? But the yeah. first match I understand. The, the bash makes sense because look, they've just brought him in. There's all this money riding on him. They're desperate to to go mainstream. They're investing so much in him. They've got two hands on on those others, and they're trying to milk that cash cow. So. Yeah. They put the belt on him immediately. But yeah, they could have made a bit more suspense in the feud itself, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, this is this is why the crowd are reacting like this, because at the moment at this moment in time in the match, this isn't your formulaic Hulk Hogan match. This is different. Vader feels different to the others, yeah. as you said. So um Hogan is in trouble. He rolls to the outside, nothing is working for him so far, so it's time to regroup. Um, but Vader follows him on the outside, goes to whip Hogan into the rails, but Hogan reverses it, sending Vader over the guardrail right where Ric Flair is sitting. Uh, back of the ring, Hogan traps Vader in the corner and pounds him with chops and punches. Finally, Vader's taken off his feet with a Hogan clothesline. Hogan's big boot, though, doesn't knock Vader down, but then he's clotheslined over the top or open onto the floor. But Vader gets up very quickly into the ring. Um, Hogan is now taking over on Vader with right hands and boots in the corner. Hogan tries to slam Vader but can't hold him, and this turns the match back in Vader's favour. Hogan takes another short clothesline really badly, holding onto Vader's arm as he falls. Um, Vader slams Hogan near the corner and lands his big Vader bomb splash off the ropes, only gets a two count as Hogan rolls his shoulder up as opposed to kicking out. Um, Vader then goes up to the top rope for his moonsault, but Hogan rolls out of the way. The match goes back to the outside, and Hogan gets a chair, clobbering Vader with it as Heenan speculates that Hogan is trying to get disqualified to save his title. Vader ducks a clothesline, hits a choke slam on Hogan, or throat pickup, as Shivani calls it. Um, <laughs> 
I suppose Chokeslam was sort of popular in ECW, but hadn't really uh, transitioned to the mainstream by this point. The Chokeslam looks weak, and it appears Hogan isn't willing to take any big bumps for Vader. Um, a vertical suplex from Vader only gets a two count, which you have to listen out for, because the director decided to cut to a shot of flair for the entire pinfall attempt, which is an absolute cardinal sin in wrestling. Um, at this point, Hogan hulks up, and my heart sinks a little, but the crowd are eating it up. Uh, Vader goes down for the big boot this time Hogan wastes a little time interacting with the crowd but hits his patented leg drop and, Ho- and Vader kicks out at one makes me wonder did Hogan waste a little time to kind of save his uh, image a little bit there Shivani is losing his shit on commentary Hogan can't believe it um, he questions it with the ref that someone's kicked out of his, his leg drop at one no less Vader then runs into Hogan who collides with the ref Vader then nails Hogan with his trademark power bomb, goes for the cover but there's no referee to count and I ask myself as always why do wrestlers <laughs> always do this you know the referee is isn't there you've just knocked him down yourself <sighs> thank you just need to get off my chest <laughs> um flair then takes off his jacket runs into the ring to make an unofficial count he grabs the ref to try and revive him and stomps hogan vader splashes hogan for a two count hogan springs back to his feet and goes berserk on vader another big boot and another clothesline sends vader to the floor landing on his feet flair then re-enters the ring chops hogan who no sells it and unloads on flair as the referee calls for the bell vader has been disqualified due to flair's interference vader then re-enters the ring and they double team hogan before sting and savage running to make the save so to me it was an intriguing match that told a great story spoiled by a lousy ending but we, you know we have mentioned the reason why politics getting in the way there um but also i think it was clear they wanted to get more than just one pay-per-view out of this main event understandably but it mm. seems to put more heat on hogan versus flair than hogan versus vader which was the real draw pq finish it really was a hmm, unexpected <laughs> on a, on a pay-per-view pay pay-per-view as well yes um wasn't expecting that. Wasn't expecting uh, Vader to go over by 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 any means. But um, DQ finish? Mm. No, not for me. See, I think what's interesting is that we're we're getting to the point now where they are having monthly or every other month pay per views rather than having you know a one one a quarter. Um, and this is, you know, this is happening in, in WWF as well with the In Your House pay-per-views. We've now gone into the, the, the era of monthly pay-per-views where we're now getting the A shows and the B shows. Um, yes. And, you know, we've seen from some of the matches on here and some of the decisions and the finishes on here that Super Bowl seems to, seems to have been a bit of a B show transitional pay-per-view. It does, you know, it's tough to differentiate the A show between between the B shows with WCW pay per views. <laughs> they were all, you know, you couldn't really classify um, an A show from a B show with WCW. Just they were all B shows, if that, <laughs> if that. <laughs> C show, D show, C show, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I suppose there's there some that were somewhat bigger than were bigger than others, like you know, your Great American Bash or Halloween Havoc, the ones that had got history behind them, perhaps. I'm, I'm more, I'm more pointing that comment towards the delivery. They could, they could promise um, a huge event, but um, 
Yeah, delivering, delivering what 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 they promised was the was where they they really messed up. They they couldn't really give us the 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 build up that they that they were trying to deliver to us. It's WCW. I, I can't really say that it was ever to me in in the nineties, in the early mid nineties, ever seen as anything, any form of competition for uh for pay-per-view wrestling events to the wwf and that's a real sad thing to say that the wwf was the a show and the wcw really no matter how hard they tried they always came across to me as the b show um that's really sad to say well it's a story that's plagued uh wcw and then tna slash impact for many years in that they they would never accept being the the secondary show which doesn't have to have a negative spin if you present an alternative you know there's there's room in the market for an alternative there always is for counterculture yeah. uh and they were never happy with that they were always looking on the, you know you know the hell mary of signing hogan is their biggest example of that and it was part of their downfall as well with his creative control but case in point this show with this you know a rare hogan laced dream match mm. this was the first time they drew 10,000 or more paid since 1989 back when the NWA was seen as an alternative and people who didn't like WWE liked NWA slash WCW. Uh, but they were never happy with that. They wanted to be WWE and when they tried to be WWE, they were a power imposter. And that's why, you know, you, you, you actually draw people with something you can offer them 10,000 plus paid. Uh, you give them such a horrible undercard, such a dreary parade of shit followed yeah. by a a mildly entertaining chief support tag match with some name value. And then the big match, which was, you know, it was good. I liked it. It was a good match. You could, you could, as you kind of said, Dean, you could see Hogan just really shuddering, just frothing at the mouth to revert to type, but kind of being kept in check by Vader and kept into a, an intriguing matchup by not just Vader, but the premise that Vader brings. Uh, but yeah, the match flirted with his old habits and the the intrigue that brought those 10,000 into the building in the first place. And even that, you know, unsatisfactory finish and lo and behold, buy rates started to tick down after that again. And they, they would have their day in, in 96, 97, 98. But with guys like Hogan, the creative control, it was always going to blow up in their faces. So it was a very temporary period of you know the one period yeah. in their timeline where they they made what justin said incorrect and they really were the the cool choice where people would have a choice between the two and actually pick wcw they had it for yeah. a couple of years and it was always on borrowed time because of the they they literally sold their soul yeah i mean the the thing with with hogan as the lead baby face and you know bear in mind my first um experience of a Hulk Hogan match was in 1987-88 time when they started showing the occasional bit of WWF on 
um, ITV, uh, along with All Star Wrestling and, and with joint promotions. And the very first Hogan match I ever saw was Hogan v Savage from Madison Square Garden. It blew me away. It blew, you know, it's just I'd never seen anything as extravagant. And then yeah. a few more Hogan matches followed. And very much in the same way that in the, you know, the UK, the top babyface, invincible top babyface was Big Daddy. And Big Daddy had a, I mean, admittedly, that was a tag. And Big Daddy was a terrible worker compared to Hogan. But there was the formula. There was the Big Daddy template. There was the Hulk Hogan template. And the Hulk Hogan template, in a nutshell, was Hogan starts off strong. Hogan gets caught either making a mistake or gets caught by a manager and the, the heel takes over. Hogan then suddenly hulks up points the finger in his face, runs him off the ropes, big boot, leg drop, one, two, three, Hogan wins the match and poses. With this match, the thing that was the difference with this match was Hogan started off with all of his big, big offense that normally would have the baby face bounce there, sorry, they have the heel bouncing around for him, and Vader didn't sell it, and Hogan looked terrified. And and that is what got people cheering because the template had been broken. It wasn't the same yeah. old, same old. Certainly agree with that. Definitely agree with that. Definitely agree with that. It wasn't. It wasn't as formulaic for Hogan on this on this on this occasion, and um, that worked. That yeah, worked. If that was the plan, bravo. If that was the plan, um, it worked. It worked really well. And I mean, overall, you know, we've, we've said about what happened later on. And, and really, I think it's fair to say that, you know, WCW was defined itself in in a holding pattern, really, with until, you know, with this kind of the, the heels being fed to Hogan until obviously the, the infamous heel turn just over a year later at Bash at the Beach. Yeah, that's that's kind of correct. But I suppose there's one thing we are doing a slight disservice as far as them getting out of their holding pattern is concerned. Obviously, the NWO was the big one, but there was something that came before that that started to shake things up, a little predecessor, if you will, and that would come later in 1995, Dino, and that would be the start of Monday Nitro, which for six years, you know, mm. entertained, for better or worse, Some sometimes it entertained in in horrific or adverse ways, especially during those Russo years. And there's times during, during late Bischoff in 99, I don't think entertain can be applied in any way whatsoever. But I have fond memories of, uh, of those six years of having competition. The Monday Night Wars were obviously an all-time peak for wrestling. And yeah. uh, I hope you're ready for this, Dean, but I've kind of signed us up for a little something because as we announced on our actual one-year anniversary on our Twitter feed, we'll be looking at those very soon hopefully where we'll be we'll be going at a little differently rather than doing random pay-per-views at the behest of a guest we'll go through and we'll start with week one september 95 so i hope you're enjoying your 95 wcw uh and we'll go through week by week and we'll just we'll just watch it and press record we won't we won't post produce we won't watch it in advance we'll, we'll just we'll just stick it on and give a stream of consciousness and we'll go for it week by week whenever we get the chance. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but I feel like Dean's like grinding his teeth, wishing, <laughs> wishing I never announced that we were doing this. He's committed no, to it now. 
it, it should it should be fun. It should be fun. You, know, you see the thing the thing you need to know about me, and this is bear bear in mind this is where like being a commentator comes from and, and writing these notes up. I like to be prepared. I like to have things in front of me. So the stream of consciousness of just yeah, you know, it will save me time because I won't have to watch something and write notes up. But to me it's something quite different in that I am not used to just watching something with no preparation and going straight in. So this is going to be very, very interesting for me because as a commentator it goes against everything i've done for the last couple of decades that's long, why long story short dean will be in deep doo-doo <laughs> <laughs> okay before we let you go mr richards we'd ask one last thing of our guests and that is to select a wcw theme tune of their choice what have yes. you gone for that was that was difficult for me to choose um, so much so that I can't remember what I chose. What did I do? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you've actually gone for uh, a tune that was featured on this pay-per-view itself. So, uh, Mr. Hap, please press play. Mr. Richards, tell us why you've selected this tune. What more can I say? Everyone loved this apart from me because I hated it. I hated the pay-per-view. I hated the pay-per-view. I hated this entrance theme. So I thought, why not? It's it's certainly distinctive. It is different to your typical wrestling entrance music. It did suit the genre of music, electro crap. <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't like at the time. You know, I've always been into uh, rock um, to have this. It was something different. It was something very different. I'll give uh, WCW that, you know, well done for using a different type of uh, entrance music. And it ties in with uh, the German electro-punk type of uh, music. So, you know, good, good, good for them for trying something different. But, you know, no, I hated it. I, I would often pause the sound, uh, mute this sound whenever uh, um, he, he came on with this music. So, uh, yes, I chose the music because I didn't like it. There you go. That's your answer. 
fair, fair play. Yeah, there's, there's no criteria when we say pick a theme. <laughs> our only criteria is just make sure it's not one that's already been taken. And this one hasn't been taken, and maybe it's for that reason that you just said, Justin. Yeah. Maybe because <laughs> But I'll, I won't lie. I've got very happy memories of Alex Wright coming out to this theme tune and doing his little dance and getting some reactions from the crowd. And that was mostly later on in his WCW career after he turned heel. And that makes sense as far as this character goes. And our last theme tune was similar. Uh, Greg Lambert picked Disco Inferno. And these two were the Dancing Fools tag team for a little bit. So you can see that whole that whole model of a hill and having the annoying genre music and shoving that. Okay, that works. But as I said earlier, my conspiracy theory about Alex Wright, they were acting like they wanted this man to be the next superstar of the entire company. Well, yeah. Hulk Hogan doesn't allow people to be modelled as an ex superstar of the entire company. So for them to be saying this, um, um, to, for, to, to give him music like this and a dance like that, and for him to be so green and so over pushed, this was a deliberate attempt to divert attention from just how obnoxious and stale Hulk Hogan was. They thought That's to themselves, interesting. they, they yeah. thought to themselves, right, well, if everyone's getting sick of how shoved down their throats Alex Wright is, they'll see, in comparison, they'll see Hulk Hogan as a welcome part of the furniture. That's my theory on it. And the theme, you don't give someone you want to be the next star of the company this music. You wouldn't hear, and and don't get me wrong, Roman Reigns' music is pretty crap at the moment, but they wouldn't give Roman Reigns this sort of music when they're trying to get him over. You don't do that. It's a good point, and uh, you can join the debate if uh, if you think that Alex Wright's entrance music and push was part of a Hogan conspiracy. Then please do contact us on uh, on Twitter when we put this up on air. Uh, we are on Twitter at because WCW. You can uh, find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash because WCW. Wherever you uh, may be in the world, you can find us. Thank you so much for downloading this. Whether you have been uh, finding us on iTunes or Podbean or the IWN. On behalf of my co-host Liam Hat, Justin, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. It has been a pleasure. I wanted to get you, you here before you go back to China. Yes, yes. Thank you for dragging my retired ass <laughs> uh, <laughs> on a podcast to give my opinions on something that really I, sh- I shouldn't be giving my opinions on. But um, yeah, thank you very much for inviting me on. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. As I said, on behalf of my co-host Liam Hatt, this is the Twisted Genius saying thanks for joining us and I'll see you ringside.